Chumbo Junk Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brady Junk. Today we got NBA, college, baseball, and the Super Bowl stuff to get into. Uh, to start off, I'm going to mention a no advertisement today. I'm going to keep it straightforward for you guys. Thanks everyone for listening so much. Uh, the support, again, has always been great. I love the fact that you're all listening to as much as you as everyone has been with this podcast. We're going to start off with the NBA. The one game I wanted to highlight of the week in the past was that Nets-Clippers game. It, it was amazing, really. It's it's how the Nets could win the finals. It's how they could win a championship if everything goes right because the offense was just unstoppable. And that Clippers team is great defensively. You have three of the best perimeter defenders in the league on that team, and they still were able to get a bucket whenever they wanted, it seemed like, especially Kyrie down the stretch. That's the best version of Kyrie you're going to get. And it works really well with the Nets team, actually, because he doesn't have to have the ball all the time. It's kind of like he was in 2016 with that Cavs team. So it's really interesting to see how the, the Nets were able to do it just by scoring. Because they were playing a lick of defense. The Clippers were able to score whenever they wanted. And the Clippers played a great game. It, ended up, it was a really close game in the end, but it was a great game. But it leads me into this thing, and it's kind of a storyline that's been developing a little bit that I kind of want to mention, and it's a very hot take, and I want to throw it back to something called the Ewing Theory. The Ewing Theory was something that was crafted by Bill Simmons. He's a pretty famous sports writer, and it's something I've stuck to and I've really enjoyed throughout sports. So I'm always looking for the next Ewing Theory. I say Ewing Theory, I'm referring to actually Patrick Ewing, and you know Patrick Ewing was the center for the Knicks through the late 80s, throughout the 90s, made that 94 uh, NBA Finals against the Rockets end up losing, and it was always great. He was always regarded as one of the best players in the NBA, rightfully so. He was a legit center, one of the probably top 10 center in the history of the league, I would say. I could confidently say he's a top 10 center ever. But the, the interesting thing with him is there was kind of a running theory where maybe the Knicks played better without him. And it kind of got not so much proven, because especially during the later parts of his career. But after Jordan retired at the 98-99 season, there was a lockout or a holdout. So the season was short, and they crammed a ton of games into a very short amount of time, and a lot of players got hurt, and one of those casualties was Patrick Ewing. So this Knicks team that, that really had an up-and-down season, their record wasn't that great, I'm pretty sure they were an eight seed going into the playoffs, ended up just beating everybody, and they made it to the finals, and they ended up losing the finals to the Spurs team with a young Tim Duncan, David Robinson. But the thing was, without Patrick Ewing, who is the star, the best player on the team, without him, the team actually performed better. So it's kind of gone throughout history, and there's been a few little examples of it where a team has a star, and you lose that star, so you think the team's going to get worse, and the media covers the star so much that they just are assumed the team's going to get worse, but secretly the team actually plays better without him. And there's a few reasons why this could happen. There are stars in the history of the league, like a very good example of this is actually a player like Adrian Daintley, who on every team he's ever played for was a very high score and a very efficient score. But the thing is, with, with a player like that who doesn't pass very often, he doesn't create offense for others. And so when the offense is so focused on him, and he, even if he is scoring as efficiently as possible, he's not necessarily creating the easiest and best look for the team in general. For example, if he's taking a 15-footer that's still a 50% shot, that's awesome. But if he misses a pass or isn't able to create a pass or an 80% layup, that's a, it's a deficiency. And so typically teams play better without those players more often than not just by spreading the floor around a little bit. You see it a lot, actually, with Wilt Chamberlain in the past as well, how teams were able to perform a lot better when he wasn't the focus of the offense. In those years when he decided to start passing more, they actually had a much better overall offense with him on the court still. Another example of this in other sports exists as well, like the Washington Nationals. The second Bryce Harper left, they go and win a World Series, which is awesome for me because I'm not a huge Bryce Harper fan. But the one that's currently happening, um, not so much, but I mean, it's, it's interesting, is actually the Rockets. So the question is, are the Rockets better without James Harden? 
Since the trade, they're 7-4. They've beaten some pretty good teams. They have the second-best defensive rating in basketball, where the Nets right now with Harden are the 27th best. That's not all because of him, and they are third in offensive rating. And yes, in a vacuum, the Nets are still better than the Rockets. But if you look at what the Rockets players are doing, they seem rejuvenated, and, and their new additions are playing really well. You have John Wall averaging 17, 4, and 5. Christian Woods averaging 22 and 10. And Oladipo there is averaging 20, 20 points a game, 5 rebounds, 4 assists. I do think Oladipo is going to get traded, unfortunately, because I do think the Rockets are trying to lose. But the thing is, they're moving the ball around more. They're playing very good defense, and they're switching out of their original style with Harden. That the Rockets didn't quite start. It was more of a LeBron thing that started that Daryl Morey took over. But it's this idea of a heliocentric offense that's going all over the NBA now. And if you're going to run that offense, you have to have the best of the best running it. What I mean by heliocentric offense is you have one player that's a very good decision maker, and so instead of moving the ball around all over the place and letting other people make decisions, you want that one player to make as many decisions as possible because they're so good at making decisions for the team, and whether that's a pass, shot, whatever it is, if they make the right play consistently enough, you're going to have a net positive offense, and that typically leads to winning. You look at any LeBron team since 2012, basically, where he took over and was kind of stopped sharing with Wade so much. When he took over there, it's always been a heliocentric offense. He pounds the ball. He's the one that makes the decisions. Sometimes Kyrie will go do a thing. Anthony Davis is the best off-ball player in the league right now. One of the best off-ball players ever. So he doesn't really involve himself with the ball as much as LeBron has it. You can see the Mavericks. They had the best offense in the history of the league last year running heliocentric with Luka Doncic. And ever since Harden's been a part of the Rockets, at least since probably like 2013, they have been a heliocentric offense. And it's been all about them and Harden and what he decides to do and how he runs the offense through himself. Now, during the regular season, it's been awesome. In the playoffs, it's not so much because you kind of get used to the decisions that Harden makes and the way he plays and the way he's always constantly trying to draw fouls. He doesn't ad lib very well. He's a great passer, but he's a great passer at making like four different passes really well. He's good at kicking it out to the corner with his right hand. He's good at doing the cross court pass to the other corner, and he's good at dump offs in the pick and roll. But if it's a, a backdoor cut, he doesn't hit that as often as someone like a Nikola Jokic, Lukadacic, or LeBron James do. And that's why it's hard to run a heliocentric offense with someone like the Nuggets because of the fact that to run that offense, you have to have that player have the ball to make decisions. And getting the ball to a center requires a pass. So there's an extra step in there when Jokic doesn't bring up the ball. Other examples you see in today's league of this heliocentric offense that is kind of taking over. I said the Mavericks, you have it with the Lakers right now. Another example is oftentimes the Trailblazers do it, but the Trailblazers is a little different. It depends on who's on the floor between Dame and CJ. They kind of take turns making the majority of decisions, so it's not 100% heliocentric, but when only one of them's on the floor, you definitely see it with those teams. They they run the offense through them. It's their pick and roll. It's Everyone kind of sets up. But the issue with it is if your player isn't the best decision maker, it isn't always making other players better, or if players have more potential they don't see as being utilized or not playing as hard. And I think that's part of the thing that went so wrong with the Rockets because it's boring to play with James Harden and now these players don't have to play with him and they have a new life and they're excited and they enjoy playing basketball again. So it's an interesting thing. The Rockets are on national television twice this week. So go watch, check them out. Keep an eye on them. It's really fun to watch how they play. They really lock up hard defensively and the ball zips around a ton on offense. And it's kind of nice to see John Wall kind of performing. Did the Rockets secretly win the John Wall-Russell Westbrook trade? As of now, yes, John Wall is outplaying Russell Westbrook. And I do think the Wizards would be better at this point with John Wall instead of Westbrook. I think Westbrook can still figure it out. You saw that crazy ending to the Nets-Wizards game earlier this week where he hit the where they scored the six points and and I think it was like four seconds or whatever. They still didn't mouth fast and Russ hit the three. That game was incredible. 
But overall, I, I, something to keep an eye on is, is Harden going to fall into this Ewing theory where a team is performing better without their previous best player? Now we're going to get into college basketball where just a ton happened this week. Like We're just going to go through the notes. Saturday was the day of upset. I feel like every single good team got upset on Saturday that played, and then it all flipped around. So we'll start with the Big Ten. The team that's had the best week overall in college basketball is Illinois. Beat Iowa and beat Indiana. The Iowa game was especially interesting. I think the Illinois did get the favor of the refs. Still a great win for them, absolutely. But I mean, they shot 17 free throws and they knocked them down, which is awesome. They were shooting 82%. They shot 14 for 17 from the free throw line. Iowa only shot six free throws. They were three for six from the line. Also, Illinois won the rebounding battle, which is always impressive because Cokeburn didn't have an amazing game. He did pretty well, but he wasn't even in that much. And Luca Garza was in for the majority of the game. And so to win that rebounding battle, it was hard. Frazier had an amazing game for Illinois. You saw that senior leadership kind of take over. And then Io was incredible. He was 11 for 18 from the field. I'd like to see him get to the free throw line more. He didn't get to the free throw line at all in this one. He did a little bit in the Indiana game. But overall, Illinois had a great week. Mentioning that Indiana game, Indiana played a great one against Illinois. Went to overtime. was an awesome game. Trace Jackson Davis for Indiana, I think is like criminally underrated. He might be like the second or third best player in the country. And it sucks that he's in the same conference as Garza. Because Garza has been playing like the best player in the country up to this point. And I think he's going to win the MVP or the Naismith Player of the Year award. So something to keep an eye on is Trace Jackson Davis. I could see me picking them for a win at least in the tournament. Maybe two wins in the tournament. We'll see how that ends up. Other crazy things that happened, though, Rutgers beat Michigan 67-37. Michigan State only scored 37 points on Rutgers. And then Michigan State lost to Ohio State and Iowa. They lost every single game this week. Another weird thing to happen with the Big Ten, Penn State upset Wisconsin on Saturday, but then Wisconsin went and beat Penn State on Tuesday. So that's kind of a net you know, negative or zero. Nothing really changes overall with the rankings there besides Wisconsin tacking on an extra loss that a lot of teams aren't going to have against Penn State. Then Purdue went and beat Minnesota. Now, it wasn't Minnesota at the barn, so this team's definitely vulnerable, but still a really good win for Purdue. Then you go and you look at the Big 12, or I mean the ACC. It was another crazy weekend. Virginia Tech beat Virginia on Saturday, and Georgia Tech beat Florida State. Two teams I was really high on. Virginia and Florida State are two of the best teams in the ACC, and they've been playing awesome basketball. But after Virginia Tech went and beat Virginia, the best team in the ACC, they lose to Pitt. And then Virginia goes and beats NC State. So it's really interesting. So overall, if you look at like how the week went, Pitt beat Virginia Tech, who beat Virginia, who beat, who beat NC State. And if you look at the rankings, Pitt's at the bottom of the rankings for the ACC. So to get that win of Virginia Tech is huge for them. And the win for Virginia Tech over Virginia was huge for them. Then you look at uh, Duke actually beat Clemson on Saturday. Another you know, huge upset, in my eyes at least, and then North Carolina went and lost to Clemson. I do think Clemson's a pretty good team, and Duke played a great game on Saturday, so a good win for them. This Saturday coming, we have Duke versus North Carolina. I can't wait for that game. Very excited. I think North Carolina's going to smoke them. Yeah, it's going to feel really good going into my house on Sunday to watch Super Bowl with my dad and just you know let him hear about it. Let him know that Duke lost to North Carolina. Put money on the game. It's going to be awesome. On Saturday, you also have the Big 12 versus SEC Challenge, and if you look at that, Oklahoma upset Alabama, and Florida upset West Virginia. So each conference kind of pulled an upset over the other conference. The other one kind of went as you'd expect. Oklahoma, after beating Bama, then went and lost to Texas Tech, who I do want to say with Texas Tech, I, I like this team, guys. Like I can see them making the Sweet 16. I can see them making the Elite Eight, actually. I mean, this is a really good Texas Tech team. Final four is potential there, depending on how Mac McClung plays down the stretch. But they just play good basketball. They defend hard. They make the right decisions, it seems like, more often than not. I love the coaching there. Texas Tech's been awesome. Then you got the game that I was wrong about. Baylor beat Texas 83-69. 
Baylor's legit. Baylor's for real. I was super impressed with Baylor in this game. And it's not because of the reasons, like the final score. The game was actually closer, I think, than what 83 to 69 portrays. Texas was always hanging around. They tied it up a few times there down the stretch, and Baylor was able to just you know, hold them off and pull away. And, and just that level of it, like being able to face that adversity, like, for example, like I think it was eight minutes left in the, maybe it was eight minutes into the second half. You have that Greg Brown dunk. That dunk was incredible. Absolutely obliterated. It reminded me of Blake Griffin over Kendrick Perkins. The dunk was amazing. Got called for the tech afterwards, which is ridiculous. It didn't stop the momentum. Texas still had all the momentum in the world. Baylor goes down, calmly hits a layup right after that. Like, it's just the way that Baylor always responded to all of Texas's things. And Texas is a team that, and I like them for this, they just get hot quick. And they have a ton of good players. Courtney Ramey, Andrew Jones, Greg Brown. Like, their whole team is a bunch of really good, you know, spark plug players that can get hot and go on spurts like no other. And Baylor was able to handle every single one of those spurts, keep it calm, and just move forward. And Texas hits a big three off the dribble. Baylor's coming down. They're going to knock down a three to match up right then and there. And Baylor played their game. It was awesome. Really impressed with what Baylor did. They're the second best team in the country. I'm still not putting them over um, Gonzaga, of course. Gonzaga has beaten everybody that's good, it seems like. Gonzaga's legit. They have beat everyone besides Baylor. I know a lot of people want them to reschedule that. I actually hope they don't. I want to see them meet up in March Madness. If they don't, whatever. But I feel like if they play now, we're just going to anoint the winner, and we don't even need a tournament at that point because they're the two best teams in the country, it seems like. Then you look at outside of those big three conferences, one thing I want to mention is Drake is still undefeated. You know, they went and beat Illinois State this week. They're absolutely undefeated. And it kind of sucks because I feel like even if they go undefeated all season, Drake is still going to be, you know, six seed at the highest. I see him probably as like an eight seed. Going to lose in the first round, not much to him. But I do need to mention they're undefeated. Looking at a few other upsets that happened, Ole Miss beat Tennessee. Uh, St. John's beat Villanova 70-59. to And Georgetown beat Creighton. So Villanova was the third best team in the country in my eyes. They go and lose to St. John's. I still got them in the top four. I still think they're one of the best teams in the country. But, you know, that was a telling loss. I mean, you lose to St. John's, it's a game you can't drop the ball. You don't see Gonzaga drop the ball against Pepperdine like like this, like Villanova's doing with St. John's here. Now we're going to move into baseball, actually. And I want to talk about this Nolan Arenado trade. Uh, the Nolan Arenado trade... He, he got traded to the Cardinals for no top five prospect for the Cardinals. Their number nine prospect and then four other prospects. And the Cardinals got $50 million from the Rockies. So, like, I'm picturing this, like, phone call. How, how, how do you pull this off where the general manager for the, for the Cardinals is sitting there like, oh, you're going to give me Nolan Arenado? Uh, and you're going to give me $50 million? Like, where, where do I sign? Do you want me to, you know, sign with the glitter pen? I don't care. Like, give me whatever it is. I want Nolan Arenado. Nolan Arenado is the best third baseman in the world. I, I understand, you know, Anthony Rendon had a better year. Alex Bregman has shown that he he could be in that conversation. Jose Ramirez is awesome. I'm really a huge fan of him. But Nolan Arenado is the best offensive third baseman in baseball. Matt Chapman's in the conversation, I understand. But you have to understand, Nolan Arenado has never not won a gold glove. In his eight seasons in the league, he's won a gold glove every single season. And I understand he plays in course. So his 295 batting average with a 349 on base percentage, 541 slugging with a career OPS of 890. Career OPS of 890. I understand you're thinking it's course, the course effect, it's bloated, doesn't matter. You know, what does he do on the road? Well, his road stats are all equally pretty impressive. Uh, his batting average is 263 on base percentage, 322, slugging 470, LPS at 793 on his career. That includes a rookie season, includes last year we had a down year. Like he's the best third baseman in baseball defensively and overall, I think. And the Cardinals got him for nothing. And it really hurts me as a Cubs fan because while 
no, it seemed like no team in the NL Central was getting better. The Cubs are getting worse. They're trading you Darvish for nothing. When in reality, they could have had Nolan Arenado. A year ago, I was asking them to trade Chris Bryant to try to get Nolan Arenado when Arenado wasn't happy before the season started last year, and they still can't pull it off. So now I'm trying to figure this. How can I get my Cubs team better? I know they don't want to spend money, so how are we going to do this? And I, I've come up with a little trade finder that I kind of like. What if the Cubs... Because uh, I think I do believe that the Rockies are trying to blow it up. I think they're trying to get rid of players. And I do like the Cubs farm system right now. It's not amazing, but it's not horrible. They have some pretty good arms. And they got Miguel Amaya down there. And so there, there's some real players. I don't want to get rid of Ed Howard, who they drafted last year in the first round. A great defensive shortstop from Illinois, from Chicago. So I want to keep the Chicago kid with the Cubs. But what if the Cubs traded Chris Bryant and Nico Horner for Trevor Story and Chuck Nasty? Now you got a Cubs outfield that would consist of Jock Peterson, who they just signed as sort of their, you know, almost like a discount Schwarber, I guess I should say. I'd rather just have paid Schwarber and kept him. I think Schwarber was a great for the city of Chicago, and he was a great Cub. But if you're going to let him walk, at least he signed Jock Peterson. Okay. Jason Hayward, who had a better season last season than Christian Yelich, and I, I said this actually a week into the season that I'm picking Hayward over Yelich for the season as a complete joke, but go look at the numbers. Hayward had a better year last year than Yelich did. And Ian Happ, who had a great year, and Randy Chuck Nasty. So you got that four kind of man rotation defense like coming in for the Cubs outfield. But shown defensively, he's pretty about league average. Jack Peterson's nothing special. Chuck Nasty's not good at all defensively. And then Hayward's getting older, but he's still, you know, he's been an elite right fielder for his entire career. But offensively, I like that outfield. And you're adding Trevor Story. So probably you put Bodie on third, and then you have to decide, do you put Story at second or do you put Javi at second? In an ideal world, I think I'd want to put Story at second just to keep Javi at short because Javi's one of the best, if not the best, defensive shortstop in the league. I think Angelton Simmons is in that conversation. Francisco and Lindor is in that conversation. Stay tuned for the MLB preview I'm going to do in a few weeks. I'll talk a lot about Francisco Lindor. That trade was awesome for the Mets, and they're going to be really good. But I do like that trade for them. I'm not sure if it would happen. I do think the Rockies are trying to blow it up, even though they're saying that they're, they're going to compete still without Nolan Arenado. You're going to trade Nolan Arenado and still try to compete, and you're trading him for nothing and giving away money. It's really a crime what that's going on there and how the Cardinals pulled this off, and it makes me sad to have to watch Arenado in a Cardinals jersey all season. Hopefully he opts out after the season just because I don't want to see him there for longer than I have to. But they're the favorite in the NL Central now. After Even before this trade, I thought the Cubs were still the favorite after the Darvish trade in the NL Central just because they're bringing enough talent back. But with Arenado and Cardinals, I, I think they're the favorite at this point. It's hard for me to say that, but he's the best. He's the best third baseman in baseball. And you have Paul Goldschmidt there. That's got to be the best probably defensive corner outfielders in the league. So it's really tough to actually have to see that going on. Uh, another thing, now we're going to talk, speaking of Chicago trades at least, uh, another trade I want to see is actually for the Chicago Bears. Before I get into the Super Bowl, I want to mention this. Uh, I think the Bears should trade everything they have or whatever the price is to get Deshaun Watson. And I know, like originally I was thinking Mac for Watson straight up, who says no? And the Texans probably do. The Mac's a little bit older, they might say no to that. So what about Roquan Smith, Jalen Johnson, uh, two first round picks, and a mid? What I'm getting at is whatever the price is for Deshaun Watson, I want to pay it as a Bears fan because of the fact that when was the last time ever a player this talented and this young has been available through trade? And I know that I can hear my dad in the background saying this. He said it when I already brought this up to him. Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler was the truth. He won a Pro Bowl before he came to the Bears. Jay Cutler was so good. My dad bought me a Jay Cutler t-shirt when I was a kid and I was rocking that to school. And that didn't work out very well for the Bears at all. But the difference is Deshaun Watson's younger than Jay Cutler was. 
Deshaun Watson's better than Jay Kellett was. I'm saying that out loud. Deshaun Watson, in my opinion, is one of the four best quarterbacks in the NFL. He's amazing. And he's been doing his entire career without an offensive line. Put him on this Bears team. I don't care what you have to give up. I understand you still want to give him weapons to throw to. So maybe don't give up Mooney. If possible, give up Johnson instead. Make sure he still has weapons. If we could re-sign Allen Robinson, that'd be great. I love Allen Robinson. I think he's one of the best five receivers in the NFL. He's just had nobody to throw him the ball. He's my favorite player on the Bears right now. If they can re-sign him, that'd be amazing. If they re-sign him, I'm going out buying a jersey. And if they trade for Watson, I'm probably going to get his jersey as well if I can't. I have to ask the wife for that. But she doesn't listen to this podcast, so don't tell her I said that. But overall, Deshaun Watson, if we could get him on the Bears, it would be the best quarterback in the history of this franchise instantly for the Bears right now. And he just gives you a chance to do something. I don't think without an elite quarterback right now, you don't really have a chance to win a Super Bowl. I understand. Ravens did it with Joe Flacco. And you know the Broncos did it with an aging Peyton Manning. And the Eagles did it with Nick Foles. The difference is with those three guys is they were able to at least manage a game to a point where they're not going to be horrible or turn the ball over a ton. Trubisky and Foles with the Bears have been horrendous. They thought, like You can't trust them to throw the ball anywhere past three yards. And Nagy needs to make better decisions and play calling as well. But I think if you bring in Deshaun Watson to this Bears team, you're instantly going to be at least favors to win the NFC North, right? Like, I know the Packers are still good, but Aaron Rodgers is tired of it there. He's talking about how his future isn't there. I think he's still going to end up back with the Packers. But give me Deshaun Watson. I'll pay anything for him. Whatever the price is, I think the Bears should do it. And speaking of football, now we're going to get into the Super Bowl picks. Because the Super Bowl is, you know, coming up this Sunday. It's the biggest game of the year. And I'm very excited to say that I think the Gatorade poured on the back of the coach at the end of the game is going to be blue. Plus 750. I love those odds. Blue Gatorade's the best flavored Gatorade anyways. Don't come at me. I know red and orange are the top two because both teams wear red. I don't care. Blue Gatorade's what's going to be poured. And in reality, my pick for the Super Bowl is I got Tampa Bay 33, Kansas City 27. I got a dollar down on that pick. And I think the odds are like plus 17,000. Like it's insane the odds um, that you can get for picking the exact score, right? But overall, I think the Buccaneers are going to do this. And it's because of the fact that even though the Chiefs are the best team, like they're the better team, in a vacuum, the Chiefs are better. In every way, really, the Chiefs are better than this Buccaneers team, except for the fact that Tom Brady's out there, and I just don't want to bet against him. And so I know it's going to be something weird that happens. It's not going to be. You know, Tom Brady just outplays Patrick Mahomes and, and has 450 passing yards, four touchdowns, and they just outright win. And it's a shootout, and they just completely win. It's going to be something weird. And so that's why for my MVP picks, I'm, I got some weird stuff going on. I like the odds for Mike Evans, plus 3,400 to win MVP. I think it's kind of the same as your talk about Tyree Kill winning the MVP. I think the Buccaneers win this game. It's going to be because their defense created crazy turnovers. Just some weird plays happen, and the special teams are the defense or Mike Evans goes off. We've seen Mike Evans go off in the past. I'm someone that's owned Mike Evans in fantasy, it feels like, for the last 10 years almost. But in reality, it's been for like the last three years. And week to week, it's frustrating because one week he'll have you know 60 fantasy points and next week he'll have two. I think this is a game where he could blow up the same way you know the odds for Tyree Killer like plus 1,300 to win MVP because you could just see him going off or two or three touchdowns and 300 passing yards, something insane, or receiving yards, something insane like that. So I like his odds to win MVP, but my favorite odds uh, odds to win MVP is actually Jason Pierre-Paul at plus eight thousand. Now a couple Chiefs players are you know questionable with COVID right now or on the on that offensive line. Are they going to play? Who knows? And if Jason Pierre-Paul, you know, 
could you just see something happening? You know, two sacks, maybe forces a fumble. You know, maybe forces a fumble that would get scrubbed for a touchdown. Just something weird. Plus 8,000 odds. I think someone on that Buccaneers defense has potential to win MVP if they win this game. Devin White, maybe. And I know in the back of my head, you're thinking to yourself, well, if the Bucs win, it has to be Tom Brady MVP because it's Tom Brady. He's the great. He's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. I've come on this podcast and preached it last week. He's the greatest ever. But I just think it's got to be something weird that happens. I think something weird is going to happen in the Super Bowl. I think a lot of people are going into the Super Bowl thinking it's going to be you know this perfect offensive play on both sides because you hear Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes. It's going to be perfect passing. It's going to be elite offense. It's going to be a high-scoring game. And it's going to be just like perfect, the epitome of offensive, beautiful football. And I think it's just going to get messy. I think turnovers are going to happen. Pick sixes. I, I'm looking at the fan duel, going through the odds. I'm picking turnovers. I want interceptions. I think it's just going to be an ugly sort of back-and-forth Super Bowl. Scores going to end up being low. But I got Tampa Bay 33, Kansas City 27, and I really have no reason to do it. And I'll probably be wearing a Tyreek Hill jersey during this game because I like both these teams. I'm really excited for the Super Bowl, but I don't want to be the person that bets against Tom Brady because I just think you'll lose. More often than not, you're going to lose that bet. And I know you could also say, don't be the person that bets against Patrick Mahomes. Don't bet against the best player on the field. But... I'm not doing it with Tampa. Tampa's win the Super Bowl this year, in my opinion. Can't wait to come on last week, next week and talk about it, but I'm really excited for it. Now we'll get into the other weekly preview in sports on Friday. We've got the Raptors versus the Nets and the Celtics versus Clippers. That's kind of all there is. Not much college basketball on Friday. The college basketball is going to come in on Saturday, actually. Kansas versus West Virginia. Kansas had a tough week last week. they got to prove something here going forward, and what better way to do it than West Virginia? Same with West Virginia. West Virginia is an awesome team. I really like this West Virginia team. I've said it before, and I always like it when Kansas plays West Virginia, so I'll definitely be tuning into that one. Wisconsin and Illinois, two of the best teams in the Big Ten. Illinois needs to win a couple of these games this week. They have another game coming up against Michigan, and they need to win those if they want to win the Big Ten because Michigan is the top of it right now, and Wisconsin is a team that's going to battle, and Michigan has the easiest schedule. So these are games you have to win if you're Illinois, and I can't wait to tune in and watch this one. Texas versus Oklahoma State I like just because it was a good game last time. Cape Cunningham versus Texas backcourt. It's going to be interesting. And your Saturday night with North Carolina beating on Duke. I don't care. With neither, neither team's ranked, I don't care what anyone thinks. North Carolina team, I think this North Carolina team's good. I like this North Carolina team a lot. And I think this Duke team really sucks, to be honest with you. So I can't wait to watch North Carolina beat Duke. I, I'm so confident it's going to happen. We'll see. I could be wrong. It's going to suck if I am. I'm going to hear it all weekend long if I am wrong. But I really think that Carolina's just going to spank them. I don't see any other option here. Sunday, the big game on Sunday is actually the Iowa versus Indiana game at 11. I'm totally kidding. Super Bowl does play on Sunday, but keep an eye before the Super Bowl starts. Iowa is playing Indiana at 11 there. Might be a good game to tune into for some Big Ten action. Both teams lost to Illinois in the last week, so you got something to prove. On Monday, Kansas versus Oklahoma State and North Carolina plays Miami. Not too much going on Monday night. Going to Tuesday, though, you get that Rockets team who I talked about earlier versus the Pelicans and Celtics versus the Jazz on national television. Counter that with West Virginia versus Texas Tech. Both Big 12 teams I like. Both Big 12 teams I'm going to pick to win a couple uh, weeks, I think, in the tournament, depending on the matchup, because I do like them both a lot. Wednesday, we got the Hawks versus the Mavericks, then the Bucks versus the Suns. I love any Hawks versus Mavericks update just because I think it reminds people how much better Luka Doncic is than Trey Young. Speaking of that heliocentric offenses that teams are running, Trey Young wants the Hawks to do that, and he's been doing it his entire career so far, and you're seeing that players don't like it. John Collins has been fighting with Trey Young over it. I should have mentioned it earlier, I didn't. 
But the heliocentric offense works if you have a great player that gets other people involved and they like him and they play well with him. Trey Young's not doing that. He's jacking up 35 footers. He's wasting time on the shot clock. And certain games it works great, certain games it doesn't, and he's nothing defensively. And players are wising up to that. John Collins wants to get paid this year. He doesn't want to be playing with Trey Young, and that's why he had an outburst, and that's why they fought a couple weeks ago. We'll see how that turns out. But I got the Mavericks in that one for sure. Looking also on Wednesday, Baylor versus Oklahoma. Oklahoma, again, had a great week last week. Besides, And so it, it'll be interesting. They did lose to Texas Tech, but they did beat, on, beat up on Alabama, the best team in the SEC. Also in the SEC, Florida plays Tennessee. That'll be another really good game. Then on Thursday night, we have the Heat versus the Rockets. Another good night for watching that Rockets team I was talking about. Then the Sixers versus the Blazers. I love this game. Blazers are one of the best offenses in the league versus the Sixers that are one of the best defenses. I actually think right now the Sixers are the best defensive rating team in the NBA. And the Blazers are one of the worst, but they're one of the best offenses. Watching these two teams go at each other is going to be awesome. The Sixers really don't have anyone to match up on Damian Lillard. It'd be awesome if CJ McCollum was going to be healthy for this one, which he's not. But both teams' best players, the other team doesn't really have a good matchup for. I know Nurkic is good, but Nurkic isn't going to stop Embiid. Let's be honest there. You're not going to see Nurkic over Embiid doing much. So Embiid's going to have a great matchup. Uh, Damian Lillard's going to have a great matchup. I think it'll be a great game. And then Thursday night, Illinois versus Michigan. Like I said earlier, they got to win this one. It's an important game for Illinois to win. I think if they win this one, they got a shot to win the Big Ten. Every team really does have a shot to win the Big Ten. You can see Michigan going and imploding and losing a bunch of games. Right now, they have a lead, and Illinois could definitely earn the top spot in the Big Ten in a couple weeks from now if they beat this Michigan team now, the only time they're going to play in this season. Now that's, that's a weekend in preview, and we got the fun facts now. I have a bunch of Super Bowl fun facts that I've been looking up. It's kind of going to be kind of like last week, a bunch of little facts, but they're all about the Super Bowl, so feel free to talk with your buddies or you know act smart with everybody about it. So uh, as everyone knows, one of the fun facts I have here is a lot of people know the Super Bowl is like the most watched television event Every year, you think it's nobody watches anything more than the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is the epitome. You have parties for the Super Bowl. It's the epitome of television, the most watched thing on television. Well, in reality, the Super Bowl is right now. The 2015 Super Bowl is the most watched thing in television history. But before 2010, from 1983 to 2010, the most watched television event ever was actually the final episode of MASH in 1983. It had 105.97 million people watching. And in 2010, the Super Bowl finally passed it. It took 27 years for anything to pass the final episode of MASH, which is the most watched thing in the history of television. Now, if you, another fun fact, the first Super Bowl was actually broadcast on NBC. And for the second half of that, the second half kickoff, NBC was still at a commercial when they kicked off on accident. So the officials actually asked them to re-kick off. They had to do a second kickoff because they were at commercial and they wanted the home viewing audience to be able to see it. I think that's extremely interesting because can you imagine that now? What if you know one team had a slight advantage on that kickoff and they could argue that for the rest of the time that because of that kickoff, they lost or won that game? So extremely interesting that one is. If you look at the between the years of 1985 to 1997, the NFC won 13 straight Super Bowls. My favorite fun fact on this list is actually the 98 Bears Super Bowl Shuffle was nominated for a Grammy that year for the best rhythm and blues performance by a duo or group with vocal. Yes, the Bears Super Bowl Shuffle was nominated for a Grammy and lost to to Kiss by Prince and the and the Revolution. Not the artist formerly known as Prince. That was in 1991, I believe. But Prince and the Revolution's Kiss beat out the Super Bowl shuffle for the Grammy in that year. Another thing to keep in mind, the ratings for the 1993 Super Bowl, this is another music one, actually went up during the halftime show. The halftime show was Michael Jackson. And so more people tuned in for the halftime show than they did for the Cowboys beating the Bills 52-17. to 
And then my final fun fact is actually one for this current Super Bowl. As you're tuning in this Sunday, you can know that this Super Bowl has the largest age gap for quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks in the history of the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes is 25. Uh, Tom Brady's 43. So it's an 18-year and 45-day gap in age of the two starting quarterbacks. That's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, the sports been great from everybody. Uh, feel free to like, subscribe, tune in, leave a five-star review, whatever you guys want to do. I'm out of here. Hope you all have a great and safe Super Bowl weekend and enjoy the big game.